0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and
1: present. Hello and welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Today we're interviewing Hope Larson, the author and illustrator of the graphic novel adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time, among many other graphic novels, um, as well as the Goldie Vance series and the latest run of Batgirl. Hello.
0: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
1: A lot of your standalone graphic novels read as folktales. Do you use um, a particular set of already existing folktales to
0: work on? Or do you create your own? I create my own. Actually, I've never heard this comment before. So it's super interesting. I definitely don't really think of them as being folk tales. I do enjoy folktales. Mm-hmm. Maybe I read a lot of them growing up. And I'm drawing on them subconsciously. hmm Um, and I do write a lot of historical stuff. So that might also be part of the, the folktale vibe that you're picking up on. hmm Um, yeah, I was thinking in particular Mercury
1: and, uh, Gray Horses and just, uh, I guess maybe it is historical, more historical. Um, it just, it builds, it usually they build in a way that feels like a folktale to me. Um,
0: yeah. That's, that's so a personal, cool. Personal reading. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. Cool. Um, I, I do a lot of research, especially for historical type stuff. And um, I do look for stories that like things that actually happen that I can pick apart and steal little pieces of, especially in Compass South and Knife's Edge. There's a whole lot of that.
1: And growing up, going up there and going to the Carl Sandburg house and like, all of the things that I did when I was up there as a kid, um, it makes sense to me that you would, you would have such a historical thread through your work.
0: Yeah, I guess there is kind of a storytelling tradition in the, the Appalachians as well. Although my family isn't from here, so I don't feel like I can claim that. I, I, did, I was born in, in North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and I grew up in Asheville. So I've lived in the mountains most of my life less Mm -hmm. as an adult, but most of my life. And, um, I definitely was exposed to a lot of live storytelling at like camp and at school. We would have storytellers come sometimes. And I loved that.
1: And I love that most of the time your characters are
0: strong, feisty girls. Thank you. you. Yeah. That's that's definitely intentional. Mm -hmm. That's a big intentional thing for me because I am not really that feisty sort of extroverted person at all like I am I am more introverted and solitary so that's not really the kind of character that you want to write about most of the time because the kinds of stories that I like to write are more um I guess action-packed or just propulsive like they move forward with intention and um you want a, a pretty like feisty protagonist to do that or at least a protagonist who is heading somewhere on purpose that embodies Goldie Vance
1: entirely um, what uh, what do you draw on to write those stories like what kind of research do you end up doing
0: for Goldie Vance not a lot oh. it's pretty much made up <laughs> um, it's set in a fictional town in a fictional hotel mm-hmm. and I had never really written a mystery, like, what I felt was a real mystery before. So I was just trying to figure it out as I went. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, like, I outlined the whole thing. So it's not like I started writing a mystery and putting out issues not knowing how it was going to end. Um, but it was a lot of, like, figuring out how to plant the clues and how the stories were going to – how the A and B plots were going to weave together as I went. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of the things that was fun about Goldie Vance is that I got to collaborate with Brittany Williams, who is my co-creator and the artist. And she did a lot of research on her own on, on Florida and the, the settings and just brought so much, um, detail to the characters and the locations that I felt like she was kind of telling me who they were and where they were. And I was taking that and, uh, Running with it.
2: Now, is something like that harder to do for you, or easier than something like the a Wrinkle in Time, where you're working with uh, such with a... myself? <laughs> yeah, basically.
0: <laughs> um, it it depends on who I'm working with. I've I've worked with a bunch of different artists over my career, and everybody works a little bit differently and brings something different to the table. And they all the artists that you work with have their own interests and their own strengths. So I always try and play to their strengths and um, be respectful of the things that they don't care to draw or that don't interest them. Um, for myself, I'm usually just trying to avoid stuff that's really difficult for me to draw. So I'm I'm playing to my own strengths as well. Like I generally, I generally write stories for myself to draw that are set in the real world and generally in the present day as well, just because it's a little bit easier for me to capture when I can easily find a lot of photo reference of the things that I'm drawing.
1: In A Wrinkle in Time, what did you use for references? Did you just read the book um, and translate it um, visually? Or did you have access to um, any anybody in Madeline Lingle's estate or any of her papers or... Um...
0: I really just had access to the book. So, yeah, I was just trying to, like, I'd, I'd read the book as a child mm-hmm. a number of times and the rest of the time Quintet and a bunch of her other books as well. I was a big Madeline L'Engle fan as a kid. Um, and when I got the job to do the adaptation, I was like, okay, I have to go back and reread this thing and reread it carefully because I suspect that the way that I'm remembering this book, and I hadn't read it since... Age 12, maybe. Um, I hadn't reread it since then. So I suspected that the way that I'd pictured a lot of things was not really what was in the book. So I did this careful rereading and I did find some things like that. Like I think I had pictured Meg as looking very different from how I ended up drawing her and the way that she's described in the book. And I don't know if that had to do with book covers that she'd been on that maybe weren't accurate to the text. Mm-hmm. but I was basically trying to pick up all the little visual details that are in the novel, and there honestly aren't a ton of them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's It kind of lends itself well to an adaptation because there is not a ton of description, and so you have more leeway to put your own spin on it while also being faithful to the book, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I didn't have access to papers or anything like that. I met... Her granddaughter, Charlotte, um, who's awesome. Like everybody from the estate was really cool, but I was sort of communicating with them through my editor. Mm -hmm. She was like a filter. And um, I basically just felt like totally supported by the estate, which is not what you expect when you go into a project like this. And I'm really grateful for that. I didn't find this out until after finishing my adaptation, but, um, Madeline Lincoln was an actress in New York before she got into writing novels. And I think that one of the reasons that her book, her writing style is more spare and dialogue heavy is because she was probably influenced by plays. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that I suspect makes A Wrinkle in Time a good book to adapt, at least for a comic. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I was wondering before I had taken a look at it how you were like, did, was it going to incorporate all the text or how was that going to work? But I think the way you did it, it worked so well.
0: Well, thank you. you, you like, it, I didn't know what to cut, it didn't seem like there was anything that I could cut without the whole book just collapsing. Mm-hmm. And my editor felt the same way, which is how we ended up with this 400-page-long <laughs> graphic novel, which is ridiculous. Um, but the other thing that happened during the process of of uh, making this book is that I wrote a script for this to figure out how long the book was actually going to be. And I made a massive numbering error, page numbering error somewhere in there. So I thought the book was going to be like half as long as it was. Oh, no. nobody caught it until late in the game. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, like are they even going to let me do a book this long? Oh.
1: Um so when you said you got the job, did you um were you just handed it by the publisher or did you find out about the project and then um ask to be put on it or come up with it on
0: your own? I got an email out of the blue from Margaret Ferguson who is my editor on this book asking if I would be interested in in adapting it. And I I had no idea this was coming. It was totally shocking to get that email because I obviously knew how important this book was. And it just didn't seem like a real email that you could get. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember sitting there and just like rereading it to make sure that I was understanding what it said. <laughs> and then I Googled to see if Madeleine Lingle was still alive or not because I was like, <laughs> there's no way I could – I could take this job if she is, because I can't imagine the pressure of having Madeline Lengel seeing my adaptation and judging it. That's terrifying. How
2: did you feel about um,
0: the Eisner? Um, good. I felt great about it. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I mean, look, it's nice to, it's nice to win an award and it's nice to be appreciated. The thing that was kind of weird about that particular year at the Eisners is that I was up against a bunch of my friends. Um, I remember Meredith Grand specifically was somebody that I was running against and it's super awkward because it was all people that I, I knew well and really respected. So like you want to win, but you're also like, but I want my friends to win too
2: that does seem difficult
0: so the process of the eisners
1: um the nominations are announced and then they have the awards at um san diego comic-con
0: yeah there's like a a whole gala thing Mm -hmm. um you dress up they have guest presenters um, I actually had won another Eisner a few years before, like when I was just starting out. And uh, that was like a, a new talent sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't able to go that year, but I heard that my award was presented in Klingon. So oh. I missed that. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the year that I won, I think it was presented by the voice actress of either Pinky or The Brain.
1: Oh my and God. I can't
0: remember which one it was. Wow. I hope but it that's- was the
2: brain. <laughs>
1: <laughs> did you get a call from like the Eisner nominating committee or did you get a message from your publisher that you were on the nomination list?
0: They announced the nominees pretty well in advance. Like they've announced, announced this year's already. So I knew I was nominated. I didn't know I was going to win. I think they checked to see if I was going to be there or not. Mm-hmm but I didn't know. It was terrifying. Cause I was like, I don't want to have to get up on stage, <laughs> but I did it. Did you have to give a speech? Yeah.
1: Oh, how, was that okay? Everything was, I'm sure it was fine.
0: It was, it was fine. I, I would do better now. I'm less afraid of being on stage now. Um, I was pretty scared. I mean, that's not like my ideal environment. I've already talked <laughs> about how I'm an introvert. It's like being in front of a giant crowd of people um not my fave mm-hmm.
2: yeah we talked to a lot of newbery winners and uh it sounds excruciating the award ceremony like there's a banquet and so they have to eat on stage with everybody staring at them and then give a they speech. Have to eat
0: on stage
2: there's, well there's some kind of like podium or special winner's table but yeah everybody's just staring at them while they eat it sounds wretched
0: that is brutal <laughs>
1: So a wrinkle in time you said that you had read it as a as a like early teenager or young
0: teenager. Um I read it when I was younger, but the last time I'd read it was as an early teenager. Okay. And um before getting the job. job. And so when you
1: reread it and then when you were adapting it um piece by piece, did it start to mean something different to you?
0: I, I think I s the, the main thing that I really took away rereading it is how much um, anger and self-hatred Meg has. And I think that's one of the reasons that I really connected to that character as Mm -hmm. a kid Mm
1: -hmm.
0: because it was just refreshing to see a character who doesn't feel great about herself, is getting into fights at school, isn't doing well at school, feels like she's ugly, and then she still gets to be the hero. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated that so much as an adult. And it, the character of Meg felt even fresher to me returning to her than she did when I was younger. Because I could see what an anomaly a character like that is.
1: We spoke with Charlotte Voikles, um and um, I asked her about that. I asked her about, you know, her grandmother writing Meg like such a character in the time that she wrote it um, and I think she essentially said that she thought that was one of the reasons why it wasn't published. Like it was rejected so many times.
0: I feel like that book would still be rejected for like the same reasons now.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And that's why that character is still so special. And one of the reasons that I, I really wanted to, um, so Meg does have a black eye in the novel,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: but because it's a novel and it's never really brought up again, you don't think about it the whole way through. So that was a detail that I really glommed onto Mm -hmm. when I was getting ready to draw the book. And I was like, I really want to put this in the book because I think it's important to have readers have see this like visual representation of all, all the stuff inside of her as they're reading the book.
1: Mm -hmm. I, that's something I noticed. Um, that I thought was incredible that it was the whole way through. Um,
0: I didn't know that they would let me do it. (laughs) I mean, I felt lucky that they let me make that choice because it felt like I was changing something, even though technically I wasn't.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think that that gets to the root of one of the things that I find special about Meg, too, which is she does have the self-loathing and she is in a bad place with herself um, and in her life but she ends up using that as a strength and she ends up using like figuring out how that makes her special and strong. Um, And yeah, I think that's still an anomaly um, for particularly girl characters.
0: Yeah, for sure. So is Meg your
1: favorite wrinkle
0: in time character? Oh yeah. No question. I think Marcy likes Charles Wallace.
2: I love Charles Wallace. (laughs) Really? I I, like fixate on him because I just, you know, I I loved those books when I was a kid too, and I always just wondered what happened to him because there's not any closure there. But what are you going to (laughs) do?
0: Does he not come up in some of the the later books where everybody's grown up?
2: Well, he kind of does, but um, there's a scene, especially in one of the later books, where they talk about how his room... Was renovated for Polly O'Keefe, um, uh-huh. one of Meg's daughters, and they they redecorated the whole room just for her. And they make some comment about how he he won't be using it or he's off away.
0: Was this an acceptable time or a different book?
2: That one was um, yes, an, an acceptable okay. time.
0: Okay. Which interesting. Stays with
2: them. I know, and it's a very that's like, ominous. I know it's this very ambiguous comment, and the the implication is that he's off doing something very similar to what happens in A Wrinkle in Time. But I always just wanted more. <laughs> but I I even asked Charlotte actually when we talked to her, and I'm like, do you know? <laughs> she was did like, she know? No.
1: <laughs> and she was like, he's just still out there fighting the good fight. And I'm like,
0: I know. <laughs> that's not what I mean. <laughs> I want that book too now.
2: I know, right? <laughs> I was like, Are you sure you never found like a manuscript or just some papers? Like, she's like, No. Oh, there's a slug. <laughs> I just <found> a
0: Sorry,
1: <laughs>
2: slug in my water.
1: Oh. Oh, God.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the South.
1: <laughs> Are you getting all this rain there too? yeah off and on i really mm-hmm.
2: hope he wasn't there before no oh.
0: I, he, he probably just crawled up on there <laughs> no, they're the worst. right before coming upstairs to do this i my <laughs> my friend was like my friend and my neighbor and i were commiserating about the rain and the slug situation and i was like yeah i need to go buy some beer for the slugs but i haven't been able to get to the grocery store so she was like i'm going I'll get you some beer. <laughs> and I was like, just bring me a six pack of the cheapest beer they have. <laughs> so the cheap- she brought me a six pack of hams. Uh-huh. And I was outside burying cans of beer in my yard right before <laughs> this. My hands still smell like the cheapest beer. You
2: so got to do what you got to do. What does that do? Yeah. Oh, it attracts them. And then they drown. Oh. They crawl in
0: and drown. Oh.
2: They get like slug drunk. Huh. Yeah.
0: That's not a bad way to go. I don't feel bad for them. Yeah, that's true.
1: One Mm -hmm. of the things I thought was incredible, um, the way that you adapted Wrinkle in Time, um, you use, of course, use sequential, the sequential panels to create a lot of movement. Um, And in particular,
0: um, the sequences on Camazotz, I thought were incredible. Thank you. Those were hard. Those are some of the harder ones to draw because it's it's like this uh, dystopian uh, suburban slash urban environment, which was not really super fun for me to draw,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, especially like the ball bouncing sequence. I feel like that whole section was like, oh, uh, like I was dreading it.
2: That does seem very difficult. Yeah.
0: But it's such a great
1: use of the medium um, and then uh, the stuff with the Tesseract and with it. Um, I just think it's, it was an incredible idea to adapt this into a graphic novel. And I think you pulled it off really well.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, Yeah, I think uh, this was really the estate's idea, mostly. Mm -hmm. That's what I was told was that the publisher submitted this list of ideas to them for Mm -hmm. things they could do for the 50th anniversary of the book. And that was the one that they really responded to and i just got super 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 lucky that they reached out to me
2: now one thing i wondered was what what made you decide to do it in black white and blue as opposed to anything else
0: um full color was going to be way too expensive and i didn't want to do full color anyway i'm not i'm not like a a good colorist myself i i like working in black and white or grayscale or like two color so Um, two color was like a good compromise because it's not quite black and white and it's not quite color. Yeah, it definitely
2: uh, captures the tone.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, the question I get asked a lot is why blue? And I always just say that it's because a lot of the book takes place at night and is sort of, or in outer space and is kind of atmospheric. And blue is the color of shadows and nighttime and uh, it feels outer spacey to me. So oh,
1: okay. that was
0: why we went with that color.
1: Did you do this digitally? Did you do the art digitally?
0: No. Um, I did that all with brush and ink on paper.
2: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. I Nowadays, I do my rough pencils on an iPad, and um, then I do my inks on paper. And for this book, I did everything super analog. So, like, my process was that I would lay out the page. I would do, like, I would essentially draw the panel borders and put in the lettering and then print that off on just regular letter paper on a laser printer. And then I would do a rough pencil of the whole page in black colored pencil. And I had to draw the book at such an insane speed that I was like, I can't afford to get precious about anything. And I can't afford to spend too much time thinking about anything. So I was like, if I use black colored pencil then I'll be a little more careful when I'm drawing, but I also can't erase so unless I really need to redo something, I just have to keep pushing forwards um and then i we edited those pencils and I scanned them back in and blew them up for the inks mm-hmm. and like printed them out in light blue and inked over the top
2: what scale were you working at for that
0: the the original the roughs were just regular printer paper size eight and a half by eleven. Mm-hmm. And the finals were, I think, 11 by 14 on Bristol board, which is still the same size that I work at. Is
1: Meg's bruise um, some ink on your finger and then smudging? That's colored pencil. Okay. (laughs) And so your newest book, um, All Summer Long, can you tell us about it?
0: Yes. Uh, So this is... um, this is the first book since Wrinkle in Time that I've written and drawn, and it's about a girl named Bina who is living in Los Angeles, and she's starting to find herself as a musician and as a creative person, and she's figuring out how you go about starting a band, and um, there's also a lot of friendship stuff that's happening. It's a, like a contemporary slice of life book. So she has this best friend, Austin, and they've grown up next door to each other and they've been best friends since they were babies. And now they're both 13 and it's the summer before th- before eighth grade and they are starting to grow apart. He's getting more into sports and she's getting more into music. And they're trying to figure out if they're going to stay best friends or if they're going to break up as best friends. Um, so Austin goes off to soccer camp and Bina stays home. And while he's gone, she ends up having this kind of intense relationship, uh, friendship with Austin's older sister, Charlie, who is like kind of this um, cool, aspirational, mean girl type figure. Um, And like this uh, this sibling type character that Bina has been missing a lot in her life since both of her brothers are a lot older and don't live at home anymore.
1: That sounds it sounds fascinating. So I um I have not been able to pick it up yet, but I'm very excited to. All mm-hmm. so. well, thanks. Yeah. Um and then you just finished a run on Batgirl.
0: I did. Yeah, I I wrote Batgirl for 2 years for DC Comics and my last issue just came out maybe last week, the week before. Mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> Is it weird to finish up a project like that and have it just be done?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is kind of weird for it to just be over because I was doing an issue every month, at least an issue every month for two years, which is a lot of issues of Batgirl. Mm -hmm. And it was really weird for a while to not have that monthly deadline and to go back to working on uh, graphic novels, which are longer-term projects where you have to be sort of on top of it yourself and getting stuff done and setting your own deadlines. Were
1: you given um, a lot of leeway about what you could do with the character of Batgirl?
0: I had a fair amount of leeway. Um, The the note that I was given by my editors when I started out was basically like I can't alter anything physically about her because she's in other books as well, not just the one that I was writing. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I always had to get permission to use any other character in, in like the DCU. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes did not get that permission and would have to use a different villain or whoever, because somebody else was using, uh, like whatever character, whatever villain.
2: In our podcast, we usually pair up the books that we review with a cocktail. So we'd like to ask people if they have a favorite drink.
0: Um, I would say my favorite drink is probably coconut LaCroix at the moment, but I am currently drinking a hot toddy because (laughs) I'm sick. And that sounded really good. And I think I may have made it pretty strong because I can't smell or taste (laughs) anything. (laughs) I really rolled the dice. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah,
2: I hope it helps with the cold
0: mm-hmm. I, I think it is helping or else I'm just getting drunk and that's helping too
2: <laughs> At least you feel better one
0: way or the other <laughs> I do, I feel a lot better <laughs> And then do you
1: have any favorite Newbery books?
0: Yeah, I had to go over the list because I was like, I'm not even sure what's won the Newbery I was such a big reader as a kid and I, I feel like I read all of them um, The two that really jumped out for me were Bridge to Terabithia and uh, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Oh, Mrs. Yeah, Frisbee! I love those. Both great. This was super fun. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Thank you so much for speaking with us. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: It was my pleasure.
2: Thanks for joining us today on the Newberry Tart Podcast. We spoke with Hope Larson about *Wrinkle in Time*, the Eisner Award, and *Slugs*. Talk to you next time. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry
0: Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.